Sin City with Nick Manessis and Dane McLean. Live chat about everything cinema, from new releases, iconic films, and plenty more for you movie lovers. Live for CMRU.ca. And now, to the men behind the mic. Hello again, MRU, and welcome back. We're back with Sin City. I'm one of your hosts, Nick Manessis. This is Dane McLean. Thank you guys so much for coming today. This is going to be so fun. Oh, hell yeah, it is. Christopher Nolan with Emmanuel. I'm so excited for this. But before we get to today's topic, let us tell us a bit more about yourself, Emmanuel. Oh, me? Um, I'm up-and-coming screenwriter. I'm trying to... Um, I've written seven scripts. I'm uh, still trying to make it in business. Um, but yeah, I've been at this for like a few years now, several years. I'm a huge film fan. Um, I just adore Christopher Nolan and his work. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here to talk about it. Nice, yeah, nice. What were some of your in, like inspirations to begin your your path in the film industry as a screenwriter, of course, like some of your? Well, starting off, it was um, well. I've always wanted to write since I was younger, but it was really during uh, 2006 when um, I watched Syriana and Inside Man, in about span of a few months in, in between each other. And I just love the storytelling that they did in those films. Uh, it just made me want to write. Um, Syriana was because of the um, multiple storylines dealing with oil and stuff like that, and how it affects these people seemingly across the world, you know? And then uh, Inside Man was for the genre conventions. It had as a, it wasn't homage to like heist films, but I liked how it, it subverted those conventions in a way. You ever heard of those, something? I haven't. I don't think I've seen them, but I, I think I've heard of them. But that sounds really interesting. I need to watch these now. Sounds great. Sounds yeah. great. And so you're you're um you're from Texas, right? I think. Where where in Texas uh, are you living? Well, specifically now, I'm in Houston, Texas. Lived there, raised, born, and raised all my life. Nice. So I guess that would be um of interest to you too as well with the the topics with those films right like uh the the industry there in houston is based on it's mostly from what i know the oil industry is pretty big there right yeah we I mean, could be better um we have uh we have our own film commission and things like that and sometimes movies do come here here in austin in particular and uh yeah it could be better it could be more fledgling but um but yeah, we have a vibrant film community here too. Really nice. Um, how are you handling handling it? Um, how's quarantine been treating you so far? So far, I've been good. Um, I recently visited my brothers and his family in Denver. But uh, yeah, I've just been staying inside, <laughs> social distancing, doing everything possible not to, you know be infected but so far i've been good um it's still sad because texas is becoming like the epicenter now and it's ridiculous it's really disheartening but uh yeah i'm trying to keep myself safe here in quarantine to hear man that's good to hear yeah and um do you have you have you worked in the film industry in texas and if so like is it what what kind of precautions are, are being put in place as far as like film productions 
you know. Well, in Houston and Texas specifically, I'm not sure, but I would imagine it would be the same. You know, people can't really, they can film, but they can't move out of the community or, you know, they have to still practice social distancing and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's a big challenge right now, the film industry. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know what will happen, but I, I'm sure they'll come up with some interesting things to um I think we were talking with a filmmaker on um, another show from New York, and she mentioned that uh, like things like action films, um, combat scenes will have to probably be quite different with the the issue of social distancing, and also maybe CGI um, will have to be used more often to to pretend that there's like big crowds and maybe people on the streets and stuff in city uh, productions, right? Like city shots, though. It's going to be pretty interesting to see what filmmakers have to do to get by in these times. I don't know. I'll have to. Definitely. Yeah, it's crazy. Something yeah. So, well, well, so as far as like your biggest influences, so Christopher Nolan, would you say he's like your, your biggest influence of all time? Yeah. Uh, in terms of like scale and and how he writes dialogue and things like that he is a major influence i mean other influences would be you know joss whedon aaron sorkin um but yeah he's he's really the main influence i remember watching inception back in 2010 and i was like even before the film came out i saw the previews and i was like wow this is probably going to be the greatest film ever and in a way it was i mean um but it was just a really it blew me away yeah oh, sure did yeah yeah and also uh good timing too because uh today was the day that his latest film tenet we have come out that's right, yeah. Yeah, I think it was supposed to come out the twenty the twenty first or thirty first, one of those. But they got it got delayed, unfortunately, you know, indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, we have to keep our we have to wait for that one. It's true. It's for the best though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, also, um, just like you, Emmanuel, um, Christopher Nolan happens to be and still is my favorite filmmaker, like my number one influence for wanting to take part in the film industry. For sure. I mean, he's he's a director that for some reason he's able to combine big blockbuster spectacle with like art house um, intimacy character drama you know like you look at films like Inception yeah it has its great scale but it's also about a man trying to uh, essentially reconnect with his family after this horrible tragedy and you can kind of see that in the Dark Knight films too with mm-hmm. with Bruce Wayne in a way in, in my in my view he's becoming Batman in a way to reconnect with his parents because of the tragedy that happened too so you can kind of see similar aspects and it's kind of a uh, similar to interstellar too with the notion of the fa- father the father daughter relationship so yeah he likes that that in itself uh i can re- I, I like a lot yeah. 
like it's there's lots of lots of heart in his films too that yeah definitely and uh, also I'll, one thing I'll always give credit to Christopher Nolan is how he he practically revolutionized the superhero genre with with Batman like it doesn't feel like a super, it doesn't feel like a superhero film it's like something else it actually made me feel Batman could really exist here in our yeah it was like um you know, a lot of people talk about he took a lot of inspiration from Heat, and that's true. But in terms of that, you can see how he was approaching it as um, as a crime drama, as like a drama that can almost transcend the genre itself. But he also he wanted people to be to be connected to that world because that's why he made it realistic. And I think that's why it has a lot of staying power too, because like you said, we can envision that Batman in our world. And what's great about Nolan is that he was able, particularly with the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises, he was able to connect real world themes, you know, like 9-11 and also the Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street movement and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Do yeah. um, you enjoy yeah. the Dark Knight trilogy, Dean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've only seen, I think only, I think I've only seen the Dark Knight, though. But that's um, I'll spoil my list, and that's actually number one on my list for uh, Christopher Nolan films. But yeah, that film was that film was just a landmark in cinema, and um, yeah, it was terrific. I still need to see The Dark Knight Rises fully. I don't know why I haven't yet, but yeah, it's incredible. Incredible. Now that you mention it, it's actually what it's actually what I'm wearing right now. See so, ya. Yeah. Awesome. Oh wow. That looks great. Yeah, thanks. Oh so, yeah, he he Ledger. He Ledger did a great job. I mean oh, oh, yeah. the sad he's no longer with us, but he deserved that Oscar win. He did. Um I mean he he took he took the essence of the Joker character and in a way almost modernized it to where in the modern day context he would be a terrorist he would be an anarchist mm-hmm. and so that made a lot of sense to me okay sorry i was just gonna say um, it's really interesting how um yeah through every era the joker kind of reflects the the anxiety or the um the worries of what are in maybe american society so do you, do you think I know this is not Christopher Nolan related, but like, do you think with the, the new Joker, do you think that idea of um, of Joker representing sort of the, the I guess the perceived threat in society, do you think that's also carried on with the, the recent Joker? Not Christopher Nolan related, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. But in almost it's in it kind of a different context because the Joker, the Dark Knight, seems like a guy. Who doesn't care if people think he's mentally ill or not, or he mm-hmm. he doesn't really bother that himself with that. Whereas in the Joker film with jo- Joaquin Phoenix, he's so overtaken by the mental illness, by his rejection from society, that his journey is almost like a cautionary tale, you know, of how we treat people, exactly. how there's this mental illness stigma and how you know people in that nature aren't really taken care of you know we're kind of you know 
pushed aside. Absolutely. So I think those two movies differ in that the Joker in the Dark Knight is more of an absolute evil, whereas mm-hmm. in the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, he's more of a character that's sympathetic and Absolutely. you know yeah. he's 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 what could happen if people you know don't start people start treating people with mental illness better basically that's very true like the walking phoenix's joker like as you said Emmanuel, yeah he basically represents how well how some big society treats mentally ill like he's just uh he's just a guy who wants to have a normal life basically be happy but he is practically a danger to everyone including himself and you know how they treat him as if as if his illness is like somehow his fault as if he well he des- as if he deserves to suffer just for not being well so that's really it's really tragic really yeah yeah very it's very true yeah i agree with you on that manual um i i saw it was definitely looking at the joker through a new lens right like um seeing him as like a product of the society he's in right like a corrupt society will will breed maybe um just you know, individuals that will suffer, right, in, in, in a multitude of ways. So it's, I don't think you really saw that in The Dark Knight at all. You didn't really see, like, what, obviously, you didn't see what caused Heath Ledger's Joker to end up the way he is. So it was, it was refreshing to see it in a, in a new way. It was a really, I think, needed perspective on um, the idea of what a villain is in the superhero context and... Yeah, so I agree with you 100%. It was definitely Yeah, it was. It was. Keith Ledger, he really dedicated this role a lot. Like, he, you, do you know uh, the story behind it? Like, uh, he, he locked himself in a hotel for nearly a month and basically prepped for the role there by just reading all these kind of mental illnesses that the Joker might potentially have. And he never left his room for a month to really immerse himself in the character. Yeah, he was very dedicated. He he wrote down and he had his own diary of what the Joker would think and he would write down what the Joker would think. And uh, what, it, what I really like is that he took a lot from The Killing Joke by um, Alan Moore, Batman The Killing Joke, which is like a seminal book on the Joker. And how the Joker acts, how the Joker acts in that book is kind of similar to how he portrayed the character, you know, wanting to show that people can be just as evil, you know, like good people put up this facade of being good. But if you really, you know, like he says in the film, if you really bring the chips down, you know, these civilized people will eat each other. So that's what he was really going for. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, like he's such a compelling villain like yeah he does all these kinds of horrible and inhumane things but at the same time he, he does have kind of a point really like that how sometimes humans are well can be selfish at times will betray one another when 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 their interests suit them basically it's, it's just... definitely So as far as like what you see in the future for Christopher Nolan, I know um, Tenet, that's obviously like, we, we know a little bit about it. You, um, you know, there's lots of images from the film. So it's looking a little bit further ahead than Tenet, but what would you, what would you think is kind of next in Christopher Nolan's like path? What, what, what do you expect him to do or what would you like to see him do? 
Uh, for me personally, I would like to see him adapt maybe a book or something that he's feels passionate about. And also, I wouldn't I wouldn't mind if he tries a hand at James Bond. You know, I feel like he's already taken from that in his films. But if you look at Inception, the whole snow set piece is basically taken from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So he's definitely a fan. I would say that. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely want to see him try his hand at James Bond. Oh yeah, uh, that'd be really interesting. I'm not sure if he. And this is just me, but I'm not sure if he has more more original ideas because I feel like he's he's done a lot of original ideas, but um, or quite a few, I should say. Yeah. But yeah, I would definitely want to see him tackle franchise, but in a different way from Dark Knight. Still with his realistic tone, but you know, a franchise that maybe wouldn't be the first idea that people could associate with it that'd be cool yeah. sure yeah very true also another thing i admire about christopher nolan and i noticed is his trademark of the non-linear story which yeah i, which yeah. Was, I believe was it adapt adapted by a Tarant- a similar style of tarantino basically would you say like yeah yeah, him and he, he, no one really likes Tarantino. I, I'm not sure if I could call them friends, but they, he regularly, I think in, when he screened it, when he screened Interstellar, Tarantino was one of the directors he screened it for. So they obviously have um, a similar in style and I'm sure they're good associates. I think, no, the, I think the reason Nolan does that is because he, he he's a very mathematical person, like the way he thinks of his movies. Uh-huh. So I think to him, a long leader story is just as sensible as a chronological story. And I think he does that to kind of get viewers to experience sometimes it's the experience the mental state of the of the characters but also i think because it's more of a innovative technique in film too yeah exactly like nolan's films i feel um say something you go ahead sorry nick um yeah like nolan's films are those kinds of films that like you really need to you know watch more than once because there's like some kind of a double meaning in his films it's not the type of story that you need to take literally like have to look at it from another angle and say very complex ask me. yeah i would say like um memento was really the the film that um i saw i think probably in high school film class that really stood out to me as it was one of the first films I had seen in that way, in non-linear fashion. And it was like, it was it was definitely something you had to watch twice, especially in, in this sort of environment, right? In high school film class, you're not always the most, well, at least for me, I didn't focus the most in, in the class setting. But I think I've revisited it since, I'm pretty sure I've watched it again. And um, I think Memento, it really stands out as just... I think one of the, the most innovative films at the time, that was a 2000 release. I mean, Pulp Fiction was, you know, it didn't follow, follow a chronological order either, and that was, what, 94, and other films had done it already. But something about Memento, I think, really stands out as um, just a totally new take on storytelling, at least from my opinion, or in my opinion. What, what did you guys think of Memento? 
I believe that the it was a very well as most of Nolan's films, very complex storyline. Like it had you it had you keep on guessing at every minute. Like even after we saw what was even though the film basically started with what is practically the end the ending, it still left us hooked since since then. Like Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I thought the film was was amazing because I think I think there's no other way that story could be told because you're following a guy who basically has retrograde amnesia, which is he can't form new memories. So it's kind of like putting the viewer in his shoes too, and you, as he ends, you know, solves the murder of his wife. So I thought that was very well done. And now and I like how Nolan, he puts markers, you know, in the film to kind of, even though it, it can be too much for a viewer, he does leave markers for the viewer to follow along and make sense of the story. And uh, yeah, I can't, I can't picture that movie being told any other way. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you there. That was his second film, I think, right? That was really early on in his career. and uh, Absolutely, yeah. Wow, he was yeah. quite young at the time. He would have been... He would have been only 29 at the time when he wow. did that film, That's which is so mind-blowing to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he worked on that film with his brother, um, no- Jonathan, who uh, he did as a short story, I believe. Mm-hmm. But Nolan just... Um, he basically took the kernel of the idea and just made it his own. But yeah, the fact that he did that at 29 is like, wow, that's that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Oh man. And that was, I think, I think, I can't remember the story behind the the development of it, like how he got. I think there was an interesting story about how he got funding for it. I'm just trying to. Yeah, according according to um, one of his. Uh, one of his friends, David Goyer, the screenwriter, yeah. he said that uh, Nolan had a hard time getting it made. Like mm-hmm. he had a lot, he had a hard time getting funding for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, which I can understand because it's not a very accessible film. But I think what helped is that the producers he was with liked it, liked the script. So, and Nolan, he's a very um, when he believes in a project, he'll he'll he's the type of guy that'll make sure it gets done. So. He has a drive in himself. So I think that's how the film got made. Exactly. Yeah, I think I've read about him too is um, he kind of felt, uh, he felt like an outsider in the sort of British film circle growing up. Yeah, yeah. In his early 20s, like he was, he was not really part of that um, sort of club, right? Like it was kind of a club attitude about who can enter and who can succeed in the sort of tight-knit community there. So he, he kind of always felt like an outsider and he, you know, he's become probably one of the most notable British directors, I would say, maybe top five of all time, I would easily, right? So it's interesting, he, a, he has a drive and he he's not afraid to, to do what he wants, stand out and break with the rules. So I think that's really, it's been his, uh, his biggest strength, I would say, so far. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. He's very ambitious too in his storytelling. Like he makes all these ideas that are are his own, not like no, no, not copying from from anything. Something we've never quite seen before in a long time. Actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's one of the few directors that you know. He's not another director that's making a reboot or a, another franchise IP or things like that. It's all original ideas, which is amazing. You know. Yeah. And, oh yeah. 
And um, one, I've watched all of uh, his films except one, and that would have to be Insomnia. Um, have you seen anything? Yeah, I've seen the film. Um, yeah, I really liked it. Uh, I think he made that film because I think because that's after Memento, so I feel like he needed. He wanted to become a household name. He wanted to be accessible to an audience. And that film was probably his most conventional film. But even even having said that, it's still a great film because it's a remake of a Norwegian, uh, a Norwegian film, but he, told, he tells it in such a, a different way. You know, he keeps the kernel of the idea, but he tells it in a very, um, con, con, uh, not convincing, but compelling way, I should say. And yeah, I, I would really suggest you watch it. It's really, it's uh, unlike in terms of like top list. Like a lot of people pointed, put on the top list of his films. Very interesting. Yeah. A lot of film fans. Wow. Thank you. It's with um, Al Pacino and Robin Williams, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, they could both give great performances. I mean, yeah. And it's one of the coolest places because Robin Williams plays a bad guy. He plays the villain. So we don't normally associate Robin Williams with, like, playing the bad guy. Yeah, that's <laughs> cool. Definitely not. Uh, yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah. Sorry, I thought for some reason that was his first film, but his first film was actually Following, right? That was his first Yeah, his short film. Yeah. Which is pretty interesting when i'm looking at here like he only put in like it's a very small budget six thousand six thousand dollars yeah. grossed a lot of money off the two hundred forty thousand. so it, it looks like it looks like from my perspective at least like christopher nolan really is like the ideal he's like the ideal filmmaker like what every filmmaker would love to do like that same formula you know start off with like a an independent short that does really well and then from there on he just kept picking up bigger and bigger projects and like every one of his films has been successful critically um at the box office I, like, I yeah he's he's just he's just had like such a steady incline i think in his career it's it's pretty impressive yeah he has he's yet to make a bad film <laughs> um <laughs> and you can't really say that of most directors right oh no yeah um, and usually there's like at least one sort of bump in the road director's face a movie that loses a lot of money a movie that maybe they spend a lot of money it's critically acclaimed but just doesn't get the draw at the box office or maybe makes a lot of money but is not critically acclaimed and people kind of doubt their sort of um their talent whether they still have it right but he's just always balanced like it's always getting great acclaim from critics and he's always like pulling in a lot of viewers and getting a lot of money so from his releases so it's pretty inspiring pretty inspiring guy oh yeah definitely um that's why he's an inspiration to me because he's able to well also the original ideas but also he's able to really tap into like how stories can be primal how they can be almost universal i mean even with batman i mean you would argue oh you can't really relate to him because he's a billionaire but this is a guy who lost his parents and you know and you, you can kind of see that in social activists they they went through a tragedy and then they want they became militant in what they did and batman is the same way how this guy 
even though he had everything, he lost what was most important, his parents. And he just decided to become, you know, a hero. And the way that Christopher, and Christian Bale deserves praise for it too, because the way he portrayed the character was very um, sympathetic and realistic. And I think that's why people related to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, that's, and that's actually one like the biggest strength in all in his Batman trilogy like like to make make Batman like really he made Batman vulnerable like and that's good yes. we're only human that he wants to make the audience not just like but also care about Batman because he's not just this this invincible force of nature who can take down criminals but at the end of the day he really has a really has a heart like he, he had a struggle like struggling to face his fears like i think that's i think that the dark knight trilogy is a bit relevant in these these days because can for those who have been in dark times it can really help them like stand up again and head to the light that's why yeah yeah and that's and you can see you can see the symbolism like if you look like in batman begins when he fell down the well and his dad picked him up if you look at dark knight rises it's the same type of well he was in even though now that at that point it was a prison so you can see like the whole full circle of symbolism of him trying to rise up you know overcome his fears overcome his struggles and mm-hmm. become batman so yeah it's just great filmmaking yeah it's like the idea that um you know the more the more human the protagonist appears to be right the the more heroic he is yeah. like the older superhero movies were, were very much like they acted like the superhero wasn't really human like he was like literally superhuman right mm-hmm. but i think i don't know people people i think were attracted to that at the time maybe but i think as society's changed and as we kind of we want something that we can relate to more like nick was saying mm-hmm. definitely the more the more human and more flawed and more vulnerable like you said nick it definitely makes you it makes the heroic things that they then do seem seem even more heroic because there's that element of they're they're not invincible right so there, there could be um there could be something bad that comes from what they do rather than just they always win <laughs> and i find that to be what i what i like a lot more about the the recent superhero movies such as the dark knight yeah, yeah. Um, point to that. This reminds me of uh, our first episode in the decade play. By the way, like we mentioned, like back back in the old days, it was clear who were the heroes and villains. Like heroes were wore capes and saved kitties from trees, and villains had long twirly mustaches and kicked dogs wherever they went. Like, I think we today's audiences we are much smarter than that. Like we yeah. don't want like a hero or a villain we want like someone like us a human being with with failings of our own yeah that's i think that's how the stories have more staying power is like you know if you have a film where you know the guy's good at everything and he's superhuman people can't really connect that because that's not that's not ordinary life but i feel like yeah, well, <laughs> but but you know, um, with Nolan, he he really took that to heart. You know, that's, and I think that works for him too because I think him as an audience member, he would probably want the same relationship to the characters too. So I think he he always films films. He always does film with that in mind. I think. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and even with Dunkirk too, like um, a lot of war movies, they they find a very triumphant sort of um, event, right? Like, but Dunkirk, I feel really focused on just the the act of getting through it, not not exactly becoming the the winner, but just just getting out of the situation, surviving, right? I think Nick, you've mentioned this in um, our previous episodes, our war episode, but. Uh, yeah, Dunkirk's not really your typical, I guess, story arc, and um, it, it breaks the conventions of, of war films too, because it doesn't choose to to show. Um, it's it's more just a sad film, but there is sort of a triumphant result. But it is just just getting out of the situation, just living another day, right? right. Rather than winning the the war. So I think That's, that was really yeah, yeah. Like when no one was making the film. To him, he said that the most important thing was to make a survival story. So, you know, and then he was attracted to the, to the project because it didn't follow the normal Hollywood formula of a war film. You know, mm-hmm. the Battle of Dunkirk was kind of like a protracted battle. I mean, there wasn't really winners. It was just a matter of the British just trying to get out of there alive. Um, and so what I think he, he did so well is that he he changed the, like you said he changed the conventions where you d- you never saw the Germans at all in the film, exactly, which yeah. I think is brilliant because yeah. <laughs> they're like this this malevolent force you can't really tie down, mm-hmm. and you really he really puts you in the shoes of the soldiers where every moment you know life could end like like that, yeah. and I thought that was well done. That's what separated him from, say, Saving Private Ryan, which which Spielberg did well, but that film focused more on like the violence and the horror of That's of war itself. So, yeah. right. mm-hmm. so true. Like the whole situation at Dunkirk was all a matter of being just pragmatic, like more live, like you mentioned, Dane, like live today, fight tomorrow. Like just because yeah. you run away, that doesn't make you a coward. It's, it just it means you're smarter. Like you you must you must use our brain sometimes, not our, just our fists and guns. So mm-hmm. I think yeah, capture that message perfectly. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And speaking of Tarantino earlier, I know Tarantino, he, he had like a really interesting interview where he was just just absolutely raving about the, the intro to Dunkirk. I don't know if you guys saw that video. Uh, no. Um, no, I haven't seen it. It was really interesting. Like Tarantino really just like analyzed the first like 10 minutes, I think, from Dunkirk. And just he just like he just basically said it's like the perfect cinematic introduction to a film like and so I think that just ties back to what we were talking about, how they really, they really respect each other and admire each other's work. So I think I find that. Yeah, really that cool. yeah, I think in one interview, he said that Dunkirk was a masterpiece. I, I can't remember if it was like a top 10 of 2017 or just in general. But he, he yeah, Tarantino has gone on to say Dunkirk is a masterpiece. So, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> It's funny too because it's so different. Like for Tarantino to to really like this movie, you'd think, oh, maybe there's something about it that is like similar to his style. But it really is like nothing like a Tarantino movie at all, right? Like if Tarantino did Dunkirk, you know, it would be completely different. But it's yeah, kind of interesting to see that like people, it's like they're kind of opposites in a lot of ways, but they they respect each other as that kind of like yin and yang. Uh, they're very different, I think, from 
yeah, from the aesthetic to the to the characters, the dialogue, everything's different about their movies. But they're both they're both kind of the top of their their game, so they can both appreciate each other's unique um, unique like auteur like ways, right? So yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to see that rather than compete with each other, they they really kind of they they help each other they, they they boost each other with their support so i find that to be really refreshing such a competitive industry right Absolutely. yeah definitely i guess nice it's really inspiring as well yeah mm. yeah if any collaborate if there's any of my favorite collaborations in film would have to be with christopher nolan and hans zimmer like god i yeah. i really yeah. enjoy hans zimmer he is basically the my favorite f- film composer right now he's like the john williams of our time he really is i mean i can't remember how many movies he's been with nolan it's been a lot but somehow he's able to capture the emotional highs and lows of of nolan's films through his music i mean i just love the my personal favorite is the interstellar soundtrack and how they had this non zimmer and nolan had this ingenious idea of using organs like you wouldn't you wouldn't normally associate space movies with organs but the reason they did that was because to give like this almost majestic dimension to what they're doing to what the characters are doing because they're going out in space and the way they use it to you know induce anxiety and induce tension was really well done in interstellar i mean that's right oh yeah Something, and from the from one of my favorite YouTube channels, uh, Screen Junkies, they mentioned that some part of the soundtrack with the organs, they sound as if Hans Zimmer just fell asleep on his piano. Like, just... <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs> yeah. Even when he's asleep, he's still making good music. <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Still yeah. can't believe Nolan won a Best Director Oscar. He, he he got nominated for one from Dunkirk, but he got snubbed for that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm kind of conflicted on that because I'm a, I'm a fan of Del Toro, Guillermo Del Toro. And I feel like that's long overdue for him. And Lady in the Water, Lady, um, no, not Lady in the Water, um, Shape, the Shape of Water, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was a well-directed film. I wouldn't say it was... Uh, it's kind of hard for me to say it's the best, but I can see why the Oscars gave him that award because mm-hmm. Toro, he's been busting his butt, you know, making good movies, mm-hmm. and I feel like he deserved it. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I really like that movie, Shape of Water. It, it, it again, it's similar to what we were talking about. It broke so many conventions. Um, yeah. It, uh, I loved it. Yeah, not to distract from Christopher Nolan, but oh, no worries, man. That was that was a tough year at the awards. Yeah, it was. Award shows like, I think any one of those films nominated could have won. It was. Yeah. It's just like wow. There's so much that came out. That was 2017, right? Yeah. That was a good year for film. Yeah, it was. Well. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. 2020 will be a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's looking like we might not even have a ceremony. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It'd be still fun to do the ceremony and then just like see what happens, right? Like, it's only yeah. a handful of films will even come out, so it, it might give some like really lesser known director like some big 
some big credit, right? So that would that'd be kind of nice. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at one point in our at one point in our podcast for the future, we should make our own Oscar show, like our own our own twenty Oscars. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that'd be cool. That would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> when we make the films, we we, we decide to choose, not the Academy. We're the Academy now. <laughs> oh wow. We we make the decisions. <laughs> oh yeah, we make You're next, Disney. Sorry, sorry, I keep I I thought I kept bringing this up, but I like I have not like not not the best feelings for Disney right now, you know, with all with all the Star Wars things. They really have have a political agenda in all the films more about oh yeah i mean it it stretches back to i mean i don't want to be the conspiracy theorist here but i think there was a reason that disney chose those type of films like children fairy tale films to kind of i don't know to me there was some agenda there but but yeah, lately they've with Star Wars, it's just been it's just been horrible. I mean, they really dropped the ball on those films. Uh, I can only safely say I liked Force Awakens, but after that, it just I don't know. They should have had a plan, you know. They should have planned these films out, have a cohesive story. Very true, man. Very, very true. Yeah. And um, since we're almost reaching the one-hour point, I think it's time that we spell out our lists. So, our top three favorite Nolan films and our favorite scenes from them. Just talk about why we love them, basically. Let's start with you, Emmanuel. What's your list? Oh, cool. Uh, So, it took me a while to make this list, but... um, I would have to say three films in particular, uh, The Dark Knight, Inception, and Interstellar. The Dark Knight is the scene when um, the Joker is terrorizing the uh, the party or the hotel where Harvey Dent was. And, um, you know, that's the first conversation between him and Batman. And what I love about it is that it was such well written in the dialogue because, you know, when the Joker says to um, Rachel Dawes, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, you have a fight in you. I like that. And then Batman shows up, says, "You're gonna love me." Then <laughs> it's just felt uh-huh. like, you know, I just like how Batman is trying to outjoke the Joker. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I love the um, the whole fight scene. It was well shot. And then, um, and then the end when when um, the Joker has Rachel out the window and he's about to drop her, and Batman says let her go and then joker says very poor choice of words <laughs> and then he lets her go and he has a kid. and then he has to uh, catch her so that was really well done well written uh second one is oh the second one is inception when um arthur is having to fight in the rotating hallway yes. that just blew my mind I know some people give a crap because they say like, oh, he, Nolan copied from 2001. But I mean, to me personally, it, it was done well because it showed you how the dreams can be unstable, how they, they don't follow normal conventions of reality. And I just love the tension because as Arthur is fighting, you know, he has to, Yusef is also in the other car trying to make sure that they don't, you know, pre- wake prematurely. So that was great tension. And then the third one would be uh, Interstellar, where um, Cooper is trying to save the ship after Dr. Man, spoiler alert, after Dr. Man, you know, basically dies and the whole ship is coming apart. 
I just love the, the scene where, you know, Cooper has to use his in, ingenuity. He has to use his skill as a pilot to save everybody. And so, and I like how, you know, him and Tars working together. You have man and machine working together to save, to save um, the ship. So I thought it was really well done. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one more uh, thing to add about the, the, your first, your favorite scene from The Dark Knight where the Joker crashes the party. What's even more interesting is that in the scene where the Joker first shows up and says, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Caine, the actor who played Alfred, was supposed to say a line to Heath Ledger, but he, he, did, he never saw Heath Ledger with makeup. So when he saw him for the first time in that scene, he, he was shocked that he forgot his line, but, the film, but no one decided to keep on rolling because it looked more interesting. Mm. Yeah, he was scared. Like, like I remember in the interview, Michael Caine said he looked scary. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Nice. Excellent choices, too. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. 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 Awesome. Your turn, Dane. Oh, great questions. Um, favorite scene. So I have a number three, probably Dunkirk, um, the beach scene. Um, I mean, there's a there's a few beach scenes, right? But I think um, yeah. the particular one would be. Well, I guess it's probably the one when they're they're all lining up to get onto the rescue boats, and yeah. you just you just see just like the 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 planes flying over, and it's just so tense. Like you you have no idea what will happen, and, and I mean and like. There's a lot of traumatizing things from that scene, right? Like the some some of the young soldiers dying in that scene. It's just like heartbreaking, and I think yeah. like that's that's the scene that really just like the emotion just is overwhelming. And it kind of goes from like this like very beautiful film, very stylish, to being just like really realistically dark and like just sad, right? And you just you just your heart breaks to see these young people just dying for you know a war that yeah out of their control right it's just it's awful but it is a scene that that just brings you in and you know almost brings you to tears and your adrenaline's in full just fully in full flight what am i saying i can't speak today (laughs) in full flight um yeah i'm not gonna talk too much (laughs) uh number two i've got uh inceptions um probably the the scene where they're they're in like the van in the rain and it's like um i think what happens i can't remember i think it's been a year since i've seen this but i think is it joseph gordon levitt he's is he driving or no is he in the back seat i can't remember but it's no, just it was like yusuf really... that was that was driving the car was right. the van. yeah yeah that's right and then who falls asleep at that point i'm trying to remember like this is the driver kind of he ends up no. unconscious no, like it was Yusuf because I think on each level they have to have one person still awake yeah. to kind of to coordinate the kicks. Mm-hmm. So, and it was Yusuf that was driving. He was awake, and he had to make sure that you know the projections right. don't get them before it's too late. Exactly. And then on the second level, it was Arthur, and that's where he had his big fight, which is I think one of the greatest sequences in film. And yeah. On the first level, it was everybody because they were all trying to help Fisher, you know, get get his break, essentially break into his own subconscious. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, that that scene and then the scenes beforehand and then the scenes afterwards, like that whole section of the film, I think is one of my favorites because it it just feels like so it's like so video game like and it's just like I've never seen yeah. it. Yeah. Like- 
Definitely. do this before. <laughs> just people popping up, waking up, running around. They're trying to find each other, like figure out what to do. I just found it to be so like I've never I've never seen this before. Like it's just it's so unique and I don't know. I love the chemistry between all of them in those scenes too. I think it, yeah. it's just like, there's just so many good actors in one space, and it's just like yeah. like literally anyone that's on screen is just like really interesting. And yeah, it, it was crazy. Like to consider considering how many big faces were in that movie, and a lot of them kind of you know weren't the center of attention for for the majority of the film. I think it was just awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then for number one, I would probably have Dark Knight, um, the bank robbery scene. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just, it was it. It kind of felt like it was all one continuous shot, right? Or was it? It wasn't, but it was kind of. It kind of felt like it, right? Like it. Yeah, like. The Nolan, Nolan, he's really good at doing prologues, and yeah. I think like yeah. with the film, like with films like Dark Knight, it makes sense to have prologues, and yeah, just to introduce, and uh, for Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, it was introduced the villain, you know, it was introduced how they can be, you know, terrifying as as the bad guys. Yeah. So yeah, it was well. It felt like one shot though. It did. Yeah. But the, it was just so meticulous how he shot it, the cutting, the, mm-hmm. the sound design, everything. It was very on point. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it felt it felt instantly like a classic movie when you watch yeah. it for the first time. You're just like, wow, this is going to stand out as one of the best films of in recent memory. Oh, and, yeah. There's just that just that emotional feeling where you're just like, wow, okay, this is this is a once in a decade sort of like film at this scale, right? So absolutely, yeah, it's amazing. And it also felt. I'm sorry, you. Were, were, I don't know. I'm. I'm done. From the opening also felt um, unique because it's a Batman movie and Batman is basically like the creature of the night. So it's really, it stands out, a Batman film opening up in broad daylight. Yeah, you immediately felt like, okay, this is going to be different from what we're used to. Right. Yeah. Be the typical Batman film. So that was really cool. And a great way also to introduce our main antagonist as well. Mm. For sure, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah really left left the audience on their toes wondering what he's gonna do next joker yeah so yeah so love it and i guess that just leaves me for my list so my top three favorite known films and favorite scene from them so my my third favorite film and favorite scene would have to be the dark knight rises where uh, Batman, Batman versus Bane, their first confrontation. Mm. Yeah, that was a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Really, like, I love the fact how they didn't use any music in that scene. Like, re- it just made the scene even more, more tense. It left the audience on their toes. Every- yeah. Like, like that uh, you haven't seen uh did you see uh, that that scene by the way Dane from the Dark Knight Rises where Batman yeah, yeah. is Bane and then yeah. breaks back yeah like like so like so tense like for Batman is like the kind of guy that you know is usually in control so it was really in a way heartbreaking to just watch him lose for the the first time like this is probably Batman at his lowest point mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah 
shows. Like it really, which again brings the point that shows Batman, despite all his his strengths, he's still he's still human. Like, mm-hmm. He wasn't ready yet. Like yeah, and and in a way, it ups the stakes because he's facing a villain that's you know physically imposing and just as smart if not smarter than he is so that's that already up stakes right. um, bane is basically like the in a way in a different way to the joker like the antithesis of batman like no one said that bane he is what batman or in this case bruce wayne would have become if he had yeah. stayed in the league of shadows yeah. Yeah. Basically, like I remember reading the the art of the making the Dark Knight trilogy, and in one passage it says that when they were conceiving the idea, Nolan Goyer and the his brother, they it was really a story about orphans. It's really a story about you know Bruce Wayne without his parents, Officer Blake. Uh, I think that's his name, Officer Blake, that's right. played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He had no parents either, and also Bane, presumably Bane. You know, never knew his parents. So it was really a story about the three of them, you know, orbiting this story of, you know, what ifs and scenarios, you know, of, you know, of people without parents and what yeah. they could become or what they could be like. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> also in, in, the mo- in the last few years, I've grown to really love and appreciate the Dark Knight Rises. Right? Like at first I was I was small. I didn't quite understand it because I kept complaining how it didn't have that much of Batman in it, how he sh- barely shows up. But at the end of the day, the Dark Knight Rises and I think the whole trilogy as a whole would be considered more about Bruce Wayne, not Batman. Like Bruce Wayne and Batman are like two different people if you look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. This is um, this is great documentary called Batman and Mass: The Psychology of the Dark Knight, and they talk about this. They talk about there's always a question whenever people write Batman, whatever the films are made about him. There's always a question of is is Bruce Wayne Batman or is he Bruce Wayne? Like, is he using Batman to further his agenda or is he or is he become Batman to kind of escape from life? So I felt that's a really interesting debate and question um, that plays, I think, plays well in all, all the films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely agree on that. I agree with that, yeah. And um, also, I gotta say this, but Bane, like, he really is an, yet another outstanding villain. Like, he really is, in a way, surpa- he upped the ante after Heath Ledger's Joker. Like, this Bane is more, he's not just some super strong super villain, but also, like, as you previously mentioned, Emmanuel, like, he's an, an anarchist, basically, a, a revolutionary who, kind of like a Luddite, I'd say. Mm. Oh, the Joker is or Bane is? Uh, uh, Bane, in, in, in a way. Like, yeah, yeah, he's extremist. he's kind of like, and I like how each film has, the villain represents something. It represents a part of society or part of, you know, what we don't check in society. Raza Ghul represented, you know, using fear, you know, fear mongering to control people or to better the world. The Joker was really about you know, upending the social order, you know, through anarchy. Whereas Bane is more of, even though he's lying, he doesn't really care about Gotham. He's using that to kind of fuel the, the 
fuel the rivalry between the rich and poor to kind of get people to attack each other because it's all part of his plan to destroy Gotham. So he's using his bully pulpit to kind of like, it's, it can, can be, it's a, it's a nagless to politicians in a way, how, you know, you scapegoat one group of people to kind of, you know, distract attention from the real problem. And with Bane, he, he used that to perfection because he's basically a demagogue. And he was using that to kind of hasten Gotham's demise by getting people to turn on each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Every, every villain is the hero in their own story, just as we yeah. are. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And for my number two favorite Nolan film and scene, number two for me would have to be Dunkirk. And the favorite scene, I'd say, would have to be the the, la the last few minutes, the ending, where the soldiers, like, they're in the train and he's reading Winston Churchill's speech. Yes. That's after the whole event, after they're done fighting. Like, just yeah. love the, like the the mute Hans Zimmer's music is just during the whole scene was very moving and really left tugged at your heartstrings like the chills man the chills yeah, yeah it does <laughs> it does because they yeah. made it out they made it out you know and like right. and I think the film was kind of <clears throat> I think Nolan said this or he alluded to it in the interviews where like he was kind of he wanted to present the origin of the Dunkirk spirit of where British people you know have this feeling of never giving up of never always wanting to overcome something and I feel like that film encapsulated that a lot you know because um, you really feel for them once they get back to uh, the mainland you know they went through hell man those troops right and it's in a way the i found the ending was very i found it to be bitter bittersweet in a way like it is a yeah. tri triumphant moment but also they're come they have to savor their victory as well because this because the setting is 1940 but the war would, wouldn't end until five years later so this is a, a temporary victory for them but what matters is that they'll they'll keep on fighting until the last day comes yeah. 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 Like really like this I find Dunkirk like the whole experience to be not just not just great for the spectacle but also for the message like you have you have to be more like the message of determination like to keep just keep going like at what for your goal no matter no matter the obstacles just just keep going yeah wow. for sure inspiring Nick <laughs> yeah I'm gonna go work on some stuff after this episode I'm not gonna have a lazy <laughs> like I wanted to <laughs> yeah that's good that's good and also an encapsulated like like you previously said emmanuel like in a way the spirit of christopher nolan like you know how how he wanted to make a big name for himself and he kept going despite the the you know the obstacles he might he might face like trying to break from conventions try something new to take risks <clears throat> yeah yeah like you know it gets said a lot you know if you don't take risks you won't have success or something to that effect you know, you have to take risks in order to reap good gains. And I feel like Nolan is such a great director because he never lets himself be pigeonholed in one particular 
type of idea or particular story or project, I should say. Mm-hmm. He's always working. It seems like from all his films, I don't know him personally, but it seems like with all his films, he he pushes the envelope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Definitely does. Yeah. Uh, and my number one, which same as everyone else is here, would have to be The Dark Knight. And one quick note, The Dark Knight isn't just my favorite Nolan film, but also is my favorite film ever, like favorite film of all time, period. Just, cool. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. That's and cool. Favorite scene, and it, and it has been like, and it has been like that for, for 10 years since I first watched it, 10 years. And oh, wow. Amazing. Cool. And my favorite scene would have to be the the interrogation scene where Batman. Did yeah, it. yeah. I was actually thinking of using that, but I was like, no. I, I really like the when. And I already said it before, but I really like when they first meet when when Batman shows up at the party and basically out jokes the Joker. <laughs> like Batman finally told a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like. The interrogation room, like this scene is so tense. Like you actually, it's also a great character study. Like you get to, you see the dynamic between Batman and the Joker. Like these two, the arch enemies finally coming face to face and just talking. Like you get to see that, like the Joker, how his philosophy, like what you said, when the chips are down, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. Like just, wow. In fact, yeah, it's kind of like um, it's symbol. It's the symbolism of order versus chaos. You know, like Batman represents law and order, or how the law should be. He enforces it in his own way. But the Joker, he's more of like, no, it'd be better for society if we burned all that down. Right. And uh, again, I'll refer back to this documentary. I really suggest you guys watch it. It's called Batman Unmasked, The Psychology of the Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. And they make a big point of why Batman and Joker are so, you know, are such enemies because they represent a philosophical battle between Batman represents these, the idea of, yeah, we have laws and people break them, but that doesn't make the laws meaningless. It makes laws still have meaning. Whereas Joker is like, no, the fact that people break them means that these laws aren't so absolute these laws are meaningless and so their confrontation and battle is basically that from that debate so absolutely yeah. really interesting point yeah like batman and the jokers like like dynamic is like uh it's basically like the earth rotating it's like a never-ending cycle because the if joker lives he will cause more chaos but if joker dies like if the only way the joker can really like truly win is if batman kills him because he forces batman to break his morals everything he represents and stands for definitely definitely and you can kind of see that in some of the comic books but also uh killing joke for for sure where you know and there's kind of a sad bittersweet ending to it it's kind of a spoiler but they're at the end when batman and joker you know after he saved commissioner gordon you know, Batman is like, you know, we, it doesn't have to end this way. It doesn't have to end where, you know, you and I have to kill each other, blah, blah, blah. But the Joker's like, nah, it's too late for that. It's too, <laughs> you know, we've already been doing this for so long. And, um, you know, and Batman is still is still adamant about not killing him. And so the Joker diffuses it by saying a joke <laughs> where they both laugh. 
So yeah, I mean, it's, this, the relationship between those characters is almost elemental. It's almost, it's like yin and yang. No. That's so true, very true, yeah. And like, um, Lord, because it's so complex because most in most heroes, there's villain dynamics. The villain always tries to kill the hero, but what Joker wants, he doesn't want to kill Batman. He just wants to make Batman just like him. Like, try to make Batman embrace his, his madness, his insane side, the dark side of himself, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like he wants Batman to see his perspective, but Batman is like, no, because you know that undermines what Batman is about. And if you look at like the Batman villains in general, to me, they all represent a dark mirror of Batman, of what he could become. Absolutely. You know, they all. I mean, all the villains have psychosis, you know, mental illness, all that things, but they all represent. I think why Batman is so haunted by what he does that you know you look at people like two-face penguin um poison ivy you know the list goes on and all these people you know they all started from a good place but they went bad and it's like it's, they all represent mirrors and what batman could become if he's not careful absolutely i definitely agree with you on that one and but the joker like that represents basically what Batman could become if he was insane. Like, you know, because yeah. there's there's nothing particularly sane about a guy who dresses up as a bat and beats up criminals. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's level. That's that's a good criticism leveled against him all the time. You know, even if my, I guess people in the in the comics too or in the world. Why is this guy dressing up as a bat? I mean, isn't that some sign of mental illness or? <laughs> I think they talked about that in uh, Batman Begins when Bruce Wayne was at that little party or meeting. But yeah, he, he it's all about theatricality, right? It's about, in terms of the films, he's taking what he learned from the League of Shadows and trying to tap into people's fear of bats to kind of get a once over on criminals, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And about that interrogation scene um, I've actually watched it so many times I I, I memorized every, every line from it and I mentioned it um, who, um, I'd like to do a, a bit of a reenactment of that scene um, okay um, I don't know if I can remember every every line but I'll try Emmanuel, uh, you be uh, you be that <laughs> okay oh man <laughs> okay <laughs> um, the part where he he, he, he says um, never start with the head. Um, you know the never start with the head bit? Yeah. Never start with the head. The victim gets all fuzzy. You can't feel the next. See? Boom. And then I hit his hand. Yeah. <laughs> then, um... Oh, yeah, and then I say, you wanted me. Here I am. I wanted to see what you do. And you didn't disappoint. You let five people die. Then... You let Den take your place. Even for a guy like me, that's cold. Where's Dent? Those mob cops want you gone so they can go back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. Then why do you want to kill me? <laughs> hey, I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Going back to ripping off mob dealers? No, no. No, no, you, you complete me. You're garbage that kills for money. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. 
even if you'd like to be. See, to them, you're just a freak. Like me. They need you right now. When they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. See, there are more rules. It's code. It's a bad joke. You drop at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows you to be. I'll show you how. You see, when the chips are down, these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. And, and then I and then I grab you from the by the waist, by the, yeah. <laughs> no, the, the neck. Yeah, that was really good. That was really good. <laughs> oh wow! You ever thought about acting, Nick? <laughs> Put that on the uh, the film reel. The acting reel. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. You got the video for it. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, you know, I, when I was in high school, I used to be in a drama class, but then I um, decided to take film studies instead because I, I enjoyed it. But I realized I'm more I like to be more the guy who tells the stories rather than be in the story. It's still fun though. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same way. Um, I've always I like the idea of being behind the camera or. or you know, making stories for people to act in. I think that's, that's an awesome feeling when you write a script or you tell somebody a story and then they like it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's an awesome feeling. Uh, how about you, Dane? Like, tell us a bit more about your acting experience. Yeah, so I, I was kind of, I started off where I wanted to do strictly behind the camera stuff, directing, writing. And then I kind of realized, well, it's kind of fun to act. Like, I, I never took, well, I took a few, I, I went to a few drama classes in high school and I took a film um, acting class, uh, like outside of university, like at a private class, um, with, a kind of, um, former director. And it was, it was cool. It was fun. And, but I, I always felt like, um, I kind of wanted to like act in my own things that I've written myself. So I just started doing that. And I, you know, I've done it, uh, two short films now that I've acted that I also uh, awesome. directed and yeah, so it's just a start, but it, it's just like fun. Like I like to do both. I think, I think it's really fun and it's good to like empathize more with actors, right? Like once you kind of put yourself in that position, you really understand what they're going through more. And so what, what, like whatever ends up happening, right. If I end up getting more success one way or the other, I guess it's good to, good to try both just to experiment and, have fun with both right so it's just such a such an enjoyable process though like you guys said and also and by the way good job also on your performance in your film east with echoes like wow i was really i was really brought in by your performance and i was shocked at the same time because you know you're usually a you're you're a calm and reserved guy so seeing you in the film like in so much panic and fear was oh my god like wow well, uh, thank you nick i appreciate it man thank you so much awesome i, I gotta check that out I, uh, east with you here. Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry, Nick. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I was gonna just say, um, um, his film is called uh, East with Echoes, and um, it's, it has another like sequel to it called uh, West with Voices, right? I yeah, think exactly. On YouTube. <laughs> yeah, we'll send it to you, and we would love to see your stuff too, Emmanuel. If you have any links to any work, we would love to to watch your stuff after. This. Yeah, yeah. I sent I sent Nick uh, two to two links to two um, short films I worked on. Oh, yeah, I'll send it to you, Dean. Dane. 
Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, and we'll have to plan a project together one day between Definitely. Canada, Canada, US. So that'll, that'll be awesome. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of these days, once coronavirus goes away and we can work it normally, that'd be that'd be awesome to collaborate. That'd be yes. so fun. Yeah, for sure. And first off, by the way, congratulations, Emmanuel. You're also our first guest all the way from the States. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. No. And two, um, I really loved uh, talking about Christopher Nolan today. Like he's like he is. There are many directors I really love and love to talk about, but he was the one, like the number one guy, the one who really what made me start my career path, my interest in the film, the film industry. Like with his very original, creative stories. Like watching his films, they really make you want to be part inside going that world basically yeah I want to go world a bit more yeah I mean he's I don't know how he does it he's able to find you know he's, he's able to have a wide appeal and his films on the, on the surface they might not seem like accessible films but in some way he's able to make it accessible which is amazing you know a lot of people will flock to see his films yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. many more to come for sure. And that's all the time we have left for today's episode. Thank you for showing up, Emmanuel. Thank you for having me. No worries. Anytime, man. And this has been another chapter of Sin City. I am one of your hosts, Nick Manassas. This was Dane McLean. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. So nice of you to spend, uh, what is it, Sunday today? Yeah, Sunday afternoon. <laughs> with us oh, of course of course of course i had the time awesome well we wish you good luck with your career and we can't wait to see your movies that you produce in the coming years and can't wait to see your name up in the credits and hopefully work together that'll be amazing yes i would love that Definitely. This stuff is coming from this dark, dark year we've had. Twenty twenty. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, sure. <laughs> It'll be good. But we'll make it out for even more feature films. Until yeah. then, see you next week, same time as always, here on Sin City Live for CMRU.ca. Thank you guys. Have a great week.